Good morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the June 13, 2017 edition of Ask a Leader. Assistant Attorney General Rod Rosenstein speaks while we're live with this show about Robert Mueller. I also direct your attention to the unseen U.S. Senate's GOP proposed health care repeal. The buzz is that we might not get to have a peek at the language before it goes up for a vote in the next one to two weeks, which would be a shame given how consequential this legislation is and given the lack of checks and balances in our current national government. Now for today's program. Alyssa Frederick, Elizabeth Hemming Schrader, and Kimberly Dong, UCI graduate students studying climate science, and they'll lift the curtain after having visited a dozen California, and we'll throw in one Pennsylvania congressional district, and if they came away changed, imagine how changed you will be by their observations of these privileged interactions. Over the second segment of the show, Tyler Stallings, artistic director at UC Riverside Center for the Arts, in his capacity as juror, will lead us around the Orange County Center for Contemporary Arts current exhibit, Art as Protest, open through July 8th. So write that down while you're waiting for us to finish our music break. We'll be right back after a short one. Welcome to the show, everyone. My first guest, and it is a stellar group, I tell you, are Alyssa Frederick, Elizabeth Hemming Schrader, and Kimberly Dong. They are all PhD candidates who are simultaneously researching leading-edge science while deepening their political involvement. They're making time they don't have to be with us to report on those several fronts. First, Alyssa Frederick, who hails from which part of Pennsylvania? Just outside of Philadelphia. Just outside of Philly. She's a third-year student, a PhD student at UCI's Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. She earned her Bachelor's of Science in Marine Biology at American University in Washington, D.C., where she studied nitrogen pollution in the waters around Guam. And having been smitten by the abalone. She researched the evolution and physiology of disease resistance, tending now to the withering syndrome that wiped out much of California's abalone population. I'll ask her later, if we have time, how many of those guys are left. She's been awarded both Fulbright and National Science Foundation research grants and numerous other, other prizes and awards. She's participated in the first cohort of the Climate Action Training students at UCI and interned with the National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration, we'll call it NOAA shorthand, to update uh, the Black Abalone Recovery Plan last year. Now, Elizabeth Hemming Schweider, originally from Minnesota's Twin Cities, is a fourth-year PhD candidate in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. She studies molecular, I'm so sorry, she studies molecular epidemiology of malaria in Kenya. Specifically, she's investigating how ecological factors and public health interventions impact malaria transmission and spread. She completed her bachelor's degree at the University of Wisconsin-Madison with a major in biology and global health where her work dealt with ticks and Lyme disease. We know there's more ticks now. Fewer abalone, lots more ticks. Finally, we have Kimberly Dong, a fourth-year PhD student in the Department of Civil 
and environmental engineering at UCI, raised in Sacramento, California. She completed her undergraduate degree at UCLA studying atmospheric and oceanic sciences with an emphasis on operational meteorology and a minor in environmental sustainability. Her current research is centered around urban drought, specifically looking at urban water conservation at the local level. Last year, Kimberly served as a Climate Action Planning Fellow for the University of California Office of Presidents, that's up there in Oakland, folks, Carbon Neutrality Initiative. She serves as president of Climatepedia, a student organization at UCI, and an up-and-coming 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can start writing your checks now, folks. She is a current member of the Climate Action Training Program at UCI. Alyssa Frederick and Elizabeth Hemming Schrader join me in studio, and Kimberly Dong comes to us from Sacramento. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Elizabeth, Kimberly, and Alyssa. Thank you, Claudia. Everybody check in. Kimberly, are you still there? Yeah. Okay. That's Kimberly's voice, and we have Elizabeth's voice here. Hello. There we go. Let me just begin by saying that were I to produce the next Wonder Woman film, it would be climate scientists like yourselves, <laughs> Kathleen Traceder, all of you who are learning how fulfilling it is to wear a lab coat and then wear a an activist badge or whatever it is people put on. I, I, I put them on myself, I'll face of it. So... Because, as I said, you're negotiating the divide from research over to public policy. So that's my wish. That's my project. And we know, actually, the School of the Arts did, with the La La Land opener, they did Zot Zot Land. So I'm, uh, I'm actually, I've approached one, an astrophysicist if he'd like to make the Wonder Woman movie. <laughs> all right, capes and uh, lab coats on. I'd like for all three of you, just give us a brief look at what your research is about. We can, we'll start with Alyssa Frederick. Sure, thank you. I, um, I study abalone, and they're a marine snail that used to live in California. Um, we still have a few of them left in Southern California, but not many, and that's because in the 80s there was a disease called withering syndrome that wiped out a lot of what was left here. And so I study that disease, and trying, I'm trying to figure out why certain species of abalone, like the green and pink abalone, are particularly resistant to that disease, and why other abalone, like black and white abalone, have gone endangered. And it, is it related to temperature, in, uh, to uh, discharges, uh, or uh, what kinds of things? There's a lot of interesting interactions with the disease, and one of the big ones is temperature, um, which makes climate change a big component of a conserving. Culprit, we'll yeah. call it. Um, conserving these animals because when the water gets warmer we have noticed that there seems to be a lot more die-off um, at least in all of the recent years okay thank you I know I'm asking you for shorthand but that's <coughs> we've got lots to cover today Elizabeth okay my briefly. name is Elizabeth I study malaria in Kenya and over the past couple decades we've seen um, a lot of changes going on such as rising temperatures, deforestation, urbanization, and uh, I'm investigating how all these factors impact how malaria spreads and malaria transmission. Okay. And is climate a, a culprit as well? Definitely. Because We've seen malaria in highland areas that were previously malaria-free and probably because of warming temperatures. Certain things aren't dying off. Well, uh, the insect population doesn't. It, it has nothing but a hospitable environment to propagate like nobody's business. Right, right. Okay. 
thank you. Thanks for putting up with the shorthand. How, all right, Kimberly, now you're on notice how short the hand is. Tell us about your research. Hi, my name is Kimberly, and I study urban drought. So I look at um, the ways that local water agencies deal with conservation programs, um, looking at how effective they are and ways that we can make them better. So the main project I'm doing right now has to do with uh, outdoor water conservation um, and trying to make those programs more efficient because, you know, over the course of the most recent California drought, there were hundreds of millions of dollars being spent just on outdoor water conservation measures, and so we'd like to improve the cost efficiency of these programs when the next drought inevitably comes. And is stormwater retention, is that part, or you're, you're just trying to turn people's consumption down, but is, but is retention also a part of the water conservation measures that you're interested in, or is that that's a separate one? I would, I'm actually working on a, on a different project that is related to stormwater retention, but we would call that more supply augmentation. Right. So you're increasing okay. the amount of supply that is available. Um, so I guess I'm working on both ends. I'm going to have a, a water district local manager uh, talk about that later on in the summer. So knowing this, that what the three of you are working on, I'd like for you to each of you to give us an idea of how you started to transition from your science awareness and deep, deep, deep appreciation of the drivers of what are these crises that you're witnessing to enormous detail. So how did that, how did you move into a, a politically active life? Shall we start with Elizabeth? So I've always been interested in human health. Uh, that's why I got involved in studying malaria. And when I think of climate change, it has huge impacts on human health, such as food security and disease transmission risk, which is related to my research. And when I think about getting involved in research to make a difference, there's no really bigger way to make a difference than get involved in policy, because policy has uh, huge impacts on what we can do with human health and improving. So were you watching sort of how what's the, sort of an illiteracy maybe in the press and how little policymakers understood what's going on or what what was a, the kind of the bridge that helped you move into public policy arena i guess the lack of attention that climate okay. change has received okay Alyssa. Yeah, so I got into abalone research uh, specifically because in New Zealand, where I was doing my Fulbright, the abalone there are really abundant, and they aren't so abundant in California. And this is a, a common theme in uh, marine systems where we're losing key fishery species like abalone in California. And climate change is a, is a huge threat to most fisheries. And we know that the most vulnerable populations of humans depend on fisheries for a large part of their protein source. And so that's really why I wanted to get involved because we know the research is there. We know that we know that what's happening, but the action hasn't met the research yet. Okay. Thank you. Kimberly. Yeah. So I've actually been involved with um, climate action even before I started research in my PhD program. And I think it was just a matter of time before um, I was more involved on the policy side. Uh -huh. And this was just an opportunity that I couldn't pass up. Excellent. And I guess I'm wondering if 
we look on uh, amongst your peers. Are, is there a little contagion here with your interest? Are your peers also thinking, well, may, maybe they ought to be involved as well? Is there any contagion, any cross-pollinating or anything like that? I wish I knew the answer to that. Um, the uh, I get different responses from my uh, constituents. I'm a, uh, also an AGS uh, representative, so a graduate student association representative. And I get mixed reactions from my students, and half of them are, I don't have enough time to be involved, and other students that I never suspected would be involved are trying to ask me how to get involved. So oh. I think we're there's a mix. Um, I think that there's room for everyone in whatever the research field is, to at least to get more involved in science communication and humanizing scientists. Um, but I think that there's a, there's a mixture there. Okay. And I don't know if Elizabeth and Kimberly want to talk to that too, but I, I, guess I do want to get a sense for what's happening around in the labs and, and that kind of thing. To me, I think there is a sense of more engagement, whether that's going to be sustained or long-term, I'm, I'm not sure, but I think there is a sense of urgency. There it is. Yeah. Okay. Kimberly? Yeah, I had a friend actually who was sharing with other friends Here's the link to our senator's website in California. You know, if you have a comment, please message them, email them, call them. Um, and I was really proud of that because I think before I told um, I told him about the D.C. trip that we went on, he wouldn't have known that this was something that was something that anyone could do, any constituent could do. And that is a wonderful segue then into your trip. Tell uh, when did you all go to these congressional offices in Washington D.C.? We were there at the very end of April, so the the Thursday on April 27th, we met with um, offices in AAAS, the American Meteorological Society, American University, to kind of hone our message and learn the best ways to talk about climate science. We had done a lot of that homework before we left, um, but we wanted to hone that in there with the experts that are in D.C. on the ground doing this work. And then on uh, April 28th, we visited all the offices in one day. All of them in one day. Was that, was that, I mean, there's three different office buildings, maybe a fourth, but there's house office buildings, there are at least two or three. There are three on the House side and I think two on the Senate. Two on, so that's, that's covering. But uh, Kamala Harris was the only senator, I think, Correct. that you spoke with. I don't know if we want to just list really quickly who you saw. You visited our congressional member representing where this radio station is located, Mimi Walters. Also, Dana Rohrbacher's office, Daryl Isas, Lou Correa, Ed Royce, Linda Sanchez, she's up in L.A. Alan Lowenthal is up there in L.A. Patrick Meehan, because Alyssa has her own special PA connections. And Steve Knight, who is up in the, it's the Palmdale area, it's up north of the of L.A. County. Devin Nunes up in Fresno. We know lots about Devin now that we didn't used to know. And as I mentioned earlier, Kamala Harris and Ken Colbert, who's in the Corona area. So I would like for the three of you briefly to talk about your, were all three of you at Mimi Walter's office? Yes. yes. Kimberly, you were there too? Yes. Okay. So anyone you can jump in first and talk to us about with whom you spoke, to what extent they were engaged and the how attentive they were, how knowledgeable they were about that, how curious they were. We can sort of, we'll start out with Mimi Walters' office. This is Alyssa first. Sure. So we met with one of Mimi's staffers, and she was really nice. Uh, we talked a lot about climate change and policy. Um, the, cli the Citizens Climate Lobby, I think, had done a lot of the groundwork for us because yes. they had just recently met with her. 
there's a lot of room for more engagement in that office, especially with UCI scientists. Uh, I don't, I don't know that we made a ton of progress while we were there, so I think that there's a lot of room for improvement. Okay. I'm not sure we're going to have a chance for all three of you to comment on that. Unless, Well, let's f let's give Mimi Walters a little extra time than we can the others because she does represent this. And I, I've tried so hard to get a longer interview out of her. I had such a short one, and I didn't even get to the climate sort of thing. But um, did you have anything to add to that, Elizabeth or Kimberly? I think Alyssa covered it on my end. Uh, we were really excited to meet with her office since we are her constituents. Uh, but I feel like, yeah, there's a lot more work that we could do going forward to engage her office in climate change. Kimberly? Yeah, that's the, my impression as well. Okay. And then Dana Rohrbacher's office. Who did you meet with in, in that office? So we actually met with uh, Representative Rohrbacher himself um, and his two of his staffers. Do you want to jump in? I don't remember their names. Well, that you don't, don't have to name them. So to the extent that they were moving along, the needle was moving in that office with respect yeah. to climate change acceptance and uh, application. Well, I don't know if I'd go that far. Um, I, do, I would say that Representative Rohrbacher was really interested in meeting with his constituents, especially students. And uh, the fourth member of our team who's not on the air um, is a constituent of his. So that's really why he granted us, I think, okay. that meeting. Yeah, he always checked. They always check the zip codes. <laughs> you can't go in if you don't have the right zip code. I think he was really interested in aspects of climate change without the label of climate change. He was really interested in ocean issues. He spends a lot of time in He's the ocean. Surfer. So yeah. 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 <laughs> um, he was interested, I think, in drought research. Um, he's really interested in innovation. I think that that's the key with him is he's he's kind of a science nerd um, and he's interested in space and all kinds of things like that. Okay, so it's about talking about science and innovation without and let him make the policy connection or something like that. Just keep bringing it back to him that the, the charts are not sh showing the arrows going in the right direction. Does he, he understand that those chart arrows? I don't think he hides that he doesn't think carbon emissions are linked to climate change at all. Then how geeky so, can you be in science if so you don't make that connection? It's <laughs> really hard to get somewhere with someone when they when you can't agree on the fundamentals. But with that said, he is interested in innovation and we could find some common ground when it came to renewable energy as far as energy security and independence. So with that type of I guess belief system that's that's definitely the route to go I think and I think like look if you if you know that you're not going to make progress on convincing someone that climate change is real and you go in and you say I'm going to be the one to do this you're going to get nowhere so connect on the things that you can connect with I spend a lot of time in the water I'm a marine biologist he spends a lot of time in the water we talked about abalone it was productive yeah I'd imagine that you've just joined us you are listening to Alyssa Frederick, Elizabeth Hemming Schrader, and Kimberly Dong. They're all climate scientists at UCI, and they're all PhD candidates, and they're talking about their work they're bringing to the congressional offices in D.C. and the kinds of interactions and responses they were getting. We were just finishing up with Dana Rohrbach. You can see, you can hear the rhythm here. We got to move. We're not going to be able to talk to all of them, but the ones that are nearest us, I'm I'm going to focus. How about Daryl Issa's office? What happened there? So our meeting with his office, it this was... This is Elizabeth. Yes. The person we were supposed to meet with that day 
didn't end up being available so we met with another one of his staffers who this was not his area of expertise so the meeting wasn't really that productive and we were really curious to meet with his office because Daryl Issa had just joined the bipartisan the climate solutions caucus okay and we really wanted to know kind of what his motivations were for joining uh, but we really didn't get those answers in that meeting. Oh, that's a real disappointment. Yeah. And so you didn't know until you showed up that there was a change, or did they give right, you a text yeah. or something before? That no, was it. And yeah. you had to make the most of that. That's hard. Yeah. Because uh, everybody's time is really carefully planned on their end and on your end. So, well, that was a disappointment. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, another thing to know, too, if you decide to ever do these congressional visits yes. is that we made plans for 12 meetings, and I think eight of them got rescheduled on the ground because of us meeting with Representative Rora Rocker for over an hour um, and because staffers were constantly getting pulled into different meetings and so are the members so that's an important just flexibility we ended up splitting into pairs and only doing some of the offices per person so so I guess it's um, a tactic I'm thinking if you can put a DuPont shield on you can like get into that office with a a very corporate <laughs> kind of <laughs> logo around your neck <laughs> all right now we're coming in all right, so that was a not even a wash really, but they but they knew you're watching. So and and as close of an election outcome as he, he had in 2016, he's right. His radar are working like nobody else's. How about Ed Royce's office? He's up there in Orange, folks. Yeah, uh, we met with one of his staffers, and she had mentioned that she's been hearing a lot about climate change uh, in her office and papers coming onto her desk, and so. She seemed very engaged and curious about our thoughts on climate change and seemed like maybe that office was considering taking that up as an issue. Was she a pretty important aide? Could you tell? She was the environmental legislative aide. So, oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So were you taking the what you mentioned with Rohrbacher's office and you put it in front of her or did you, you could sort of turn it up a little bit? We, I think, were more straight talk with that office. She acknowledged that the climate is changing, and I think that carbon emissions are linked to that. So, so when Robert Inglis, who was voted out of office in Southern South Carolina Congressional District some years ago, and when he talks about his climate change mission to get the orthodoxy change in the GOP, he and others have said that the aides are on board with climate change. So could you see a little bit of a, not a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, but a sort of a, some kind of way they, and part of the message is, we know what you guys want us to do, or we, we know what you're about. We know we have lots of motion on our end that's necessary. Did they give you any indicators? Yeah, all the time. Uh, I, I think it's important to remember that, that staffers are their own people and they don't necessarily they might, but they don't necessarily align their political leanings or their beliefs in any topics with their boss. They're just doing the best jobs that they can at the jobs that they have. Um, and so I, I, I think that a lot of the staffers that we met with were really on board with climate change as an issue. Um, it's just that they have to work within the limitations of what their boss will pass as legislation. And so they really rely on us to bring the the impetus for them to have to go to their boss to talk about these issues um, but I think it's not convincing them that them the staffers themselves that climate change is real right, necessarily I understand. but but yes Elizabeth 
Yeah, and most of the offices we met with, I think with the exception of Rohrbach, acknowledged the climate is changing, we're causing it. So I think that we are, you know, making progress. And I think there is, I think we have a window of opportunity right now that we really need to jump on. Kimberly, we haven't given you a chance to talk about this part. Uh, yeah, I would say that a lot of the aides were actually quite young, and that was something surprising. I think that they're college age or just graduating from college, and so I would say that um, they've got this kind of cultural difference, a generational difference that maybe their bosses you know, don't quite align with. And so I think that partially has some contribution to them being very open and candid about climate change as a topic in general. So we're not going to get to uh, cover everybody, unfortunately, with the time we have remaining. What did Devin Nunes' office now? Because he's been very high profile in judicial in judiciary con- investigations in, on the national level. What was his office's attunement to the climate issues? Elizabeth's looking the most pensive. And, or Kimberly, Kimberly, you want to start? Kimberly is, she met with that office. Elizabeth okay, Kimberly, yeah. tell us. What did you find out there? Because none of us have been there. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. I, I went to that office with uh, the other person in our group, uh, Danilo Caputo. Um, and I felt like that was one of the best meetings we had. The staffer was a um, very experienced policy advisor and said over and over that he really values seeing perspectives um, all around the board. And I respected that. And I think he was very engaged with what we had to say and asked us for lots of supplemental information. Um, and that's, that's the kind of progress we'd like to see in every office, someone who's engaged, someone who's interested, someone who's open to the idea of learning more about what we have to offer. Um, and I think it, it couldn't have gone better, really. Uh, I wouldn't say that he, he says that Representative Nunes is, is pledging to, <laughs> to um, you know. He's not joining the caucus to, yet. Right, exactly, to committing to all of these, all of these um, issues that we're discussing. Um, but certainly I, I couldn't have expected a, a better, uh, more receptive response and just very friendly, very um, in line with, how we want to communicate and collaborate with these with these staffers and representatives. So you're saying that the others appeared, other aides in the other offices appeared to be younger, like almost they could have been interns, for goodness sake. So that I guess one of the takeaways here is, is to figure out how you can sort of check those organizational charts and sort of importune the scheduler for the office to give you a more senior policy uh, staff member of those offices, Alyssa. Actually, I'd I'd argue that uh, I mean DC runs on the, on young life. And I, blood. No, I understand <laughs> that because it's such an athletic thing, the political turmoil there. And and I don't think that age actually has anything to do with power in those offices. But but newness is what you were not newness, but newness is what uh, you were all weighing in with, and then that's it's hard to know just how much more. I mean, and and what Kimberly's talking about in the newness. <laughs> office how there seemed to be much more engagement because this person can see where that data goes into that public policy kind of mobilization or something like that i, th- I think I th- a lot of the offices are like that okay not just that one kimberly yeah i think i think it has less to do with the fact that he's older or more experienced and more to do with his 
just his personality. He said he's okay. very curious and, and wants to hear about everything that comes to his desk So anything, at a very deep level. Okay. I, I, no surprise, I guess, what uh, Kamala Harris's office would have been like, but what, was there anything surprising that you did encounter in that she's our junior senator here? We've seen her on the Judiciary Committee. She's been very, very high profile, but no? Okay. <laughs> So I'd like to have you give us a chance to run by how the the women's the 500 women scientists uh, you're going to be offering the a local webinar in Costa Mesa on Thursday at 5 p.m. How do people follow that webinar? Great. Um, so the 500 women scientists, uh, their national or overarching branch, uh, posted it on their social media. Um, but if you go guess to either one of mine or Liz's websites um, we can post it later today um, but you can come to UCI there's going to be a room where you can meet with us while we're hosting the webinar from 5 to 6 and that'll be in Steinhaus 247 but on but remotely how can people do that um, so the link is is going to be posted online it's posted on the 500 women scientists website okay on their Facebook account yeah there. okay so we won't we'll hear from the scientists will you be actively engage, uh, 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 visible, audible on that webinar? Yeah, it'll, it'll just be me and Liz, and we're going um, oh. ta yeah, to talk about how to set up meetings, what the meetings are actually like when you're in the room, how to prepare a message, all the things that all four of us did while we were preparing for um, this event. It's just that Liz and I are both members of the local chapter of 500 Women Scientists in Costa Mesa. So. Okay, okay. So, Kimberly, are you going to be somehow participating in this uh no i won't be um i'm actually calling in from out of town and so it's, it's a little hard to schedule and, and they've got they've got all the information that's needed for the webinar well it sounds like you've got lots though to, to they've got your lots of your takeaways from your experience there too so mm -hmm. well i want to thank all three of you kimberly dong and Alyssa frederick and Elizabeth Hemming Schrader. Thank you all three for being on the show today on Ask a Leader. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Thanks, and keep it up. Keep teaching us, and good luck in your next place you're going, okay? Thanks. Thanks. Summertime with John Coltrane. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest is Tyler Stallings, Artistic Director at the University of California Irvine Arts Block and the Sweeney Art Gallery. He's going to talk today about the remarkable exhibition entitled Art as Protest, which he's juried at the Orange County Center for Contemporary Art. His curatorial projects focus on contemporary art with a special emphasis on the exploration of identity, technology, photo-based work, and urban culture. Tyler Stallings has organized exhibitions as program director for the Huntington Beach Art Center. You might have seen him there. And as a chief curator at the Laguna Art Museum. He's also worked for the City of Los Angeles Cultural Affairs Department. And in addition to serving as the artistic director right now at the University of California Riverside Cultural Center of the Arts, he's also contributed scholarly essays to several books and is a columnist at for KCET's 
Artbound program. Tyler Stallings earned his Master's of Fine Arts from CalArts, and he comes to us today from Riverside, California. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Tyler Stallings. Oh, well, thank you for having me. First, congratulations on a really terrific show, one with lingering impact, I must say. Tell us, Tyler, about the theme you were striking and the outpouring you received from the artists around the country. Yeah, I mean, this is really, you know, a timely show. And when um, the Orange County Center for Contemporary Arts invited me to be the juror, I was really excited because a lot of my um, past exhibitions deal with uh, political and social work. And I think that, you know, really captures a zeitgeist uh, that's going on right now in which people want to feel, you know, that they have a voice, and especially in a time where, you know, there's a lot of um, lack of transparency, you know, kind of going on in Congress. So sometimes you feel like your vote doesn't count, um, you know, especially, you know, the way um, the election occurred. So I think, you know, art, um, which is so much about personal expression, you know, is um, one of those ways to uh, let people know that um, uh, not everybody's in agreement um, and that there are alternative ways of thinking approaches to um, society. And you do, you're, you're giving us all a home. So how did the, the artists respond? I mean, I'm, I'm imagining you were deluged, but you, and you, you had room for, what, there's 80 artists, there's 91 pieces there. So tell us about the kind of response that you got with, you had to maybe turn a few away. How did that work? Yeah, I mean, you know, the thing with the juried exhibition, you know, it's always one person's perspective. Right. And uh, so oh, um, in this case, job. you know, there were, I believe, over 500 entries and, you know, ended up choosing uh, from different artists and ended up choosing, as you said, 80 artists with um, 91 works. And I know that the staff, at, you know, Robin Rep and Stephen Anderson um, really had a hard time fitting in all the work, but, you know, felt that I chose, you know, what was really the best work. I, I think some of the interesting trends that uh, that you saw among the entries and then also was kind of reflected, you know, in the final work was in the show is that, you know, there was a lot of work, of course, dealing with the Trump. Uh, there was a lot of work dealing with the idea of the flag as a symbol. Uh, there was, a, you know, several works dealing around the Black Lives Matter, a few works dealing with, um, you know, LGBTQ um, issues, some gender issues, but I would say really the primary um, was really kind of the flag and Trump were kind of the two things you saw a lot. Right, right. Yeah, you have, you have actually a whole Trump section, but it, I'm not going to take anything away from what people will visit afresh. I have promised you that, Tyler, and for listeners, I'm, I'm not going to give a thing away. There's so much the, in how we can just entice you all to come because it's, it's, frankly, it's required attendance. I've just, I, I'm assigning every listener that uh, I must get there before it closes after July 8. July 8 your last day. So you've given the artists and you've given the patrons a place to gather. And so I don't know if you have any kind of anecdotes to report about what the viewers got out of this mix. Yeah, on the opening reception this past June 3rd, I think one of the works that seemed to be getting a lot of attention, and, you, and the thing is you never know um, no. what work is going to get attention, was this uh, piece by Kelly Burke, and it was called Reimagined American Flag Series, um, All Lives Matter. And she has uh, a variety of works that she had submitted, and this is the one that I chose uh, that really, as the title suggests, is Reimagining the American Flag. And in this particular piece, uh, it includes where the, the white and red stripes 
they were populated by flags of um, many countries around the world. Uh, and then kind of uh, interwoven in that was the phrase, all lives matter. And, you know, what I, I think that, you know, I had some people come up and ask me about that work, and they didn't sort of give me their opinion, but I felt that there was kind of another question or thoughts behind that. But I feel that for some people, that particular piece was, it brings up a lot of issues. One, um, by populating the U.S. flag with flags of other countries, it sort of is pointing to globalism, you know, that, that the U.S. should see itself within the context of globalism. How rich um, our fabric is. Yeah, and exactly. You know, that we're part of a web of connections. Now, of course, that's very contrary to the current administration's point of view, which is very foc- which is refocusing on nationalist, you know, boundaries and retreating, you know, from um, connecting up with other countries. And, you know, so I'm kind of wondering if that's there. The other thing is that Kelly, who um, is half black, half white, you know, that she herself kind of talks about that and describes herself in that manner. She herself, I think, challenged herself by sort of putting all lives matter, which, you know, could be considered controversial because it is, is it appropriating or diluting, you know, the yes. black lives matter phrase. And, was, um, and so I think, you know, as artists who are always challenging all boundaries, I mean, that um, no one can say that they own any particular idea, um, especially, you know, when artists engage with it. Um, so I think that was also perhaps a challenging thing for some people, too. And she has position to express this. She comes from Baltimore, Maryland, and, and she was there at the opening. It was lovely and meet her. So she was able to witness very closely one of the assaults that was that people mobilized around in, in, in Baltimore about two years ago. Yes, but yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah, okay. and it, it's interesting. One of these funny, one of the funny aspects of this piece is that a lot of people were taking selfies, you know, with this particular piece, which is kind of an interesting, you know, phenomenon, and where people often be at places that are actually memorials, you know, for very um, heinous situations, um, but you know, because they're sort of out and about where they're friends, they just, in the cultural phenomenon of taking selfies, they just sort of automatically do it. But, you know, there's this kind of a little bit of a irony that they're kind of celebrating that they're there, yet they're celebrating it within the context of a memorial for heinous day. And sort of the classic one is the um, Holocaust Memorial in Germany. Um, And there was an artist, I think, who went and took the selfies from Facebook, and he cut out the people uh, and put them in Nazi concentration camps photos as if they were taking selfies within that context to kind of show that they're sort of not really paying attention, you know, to the context that they're in. And so I found that kind of interesting with this piece and that it's a, you know, I I have no idea why what people's um, feelings were about, you know, posing, you know, in front of the piece, but it it became one of those backdrops for themselves. It's a whole additional exhibit unto itself. Yeah, exactly. Tagging where all those those renderings showed up later in other places all around the world. Well, I guess we'll let's talk a little bit about some of those other pieces. There's paintings, there's sculptures, and there's several videos. One whole section, as we said, represents the sitting president. And I, I picked up, and I'm not an art historian, so I'm going to be missing a lot of other kinds of approaches. But I saw Goya, I saw Frida Kahlo, I saw lots of traditions that were honored there. And so maybe you want to say some other artists that I neglect here. Yeah, well, I think um, just in terms of the broader idea of kind of artists, you know, using, um, being in dialogue with artists from the past, you know, I think that uh, many of these artists like Goya and Kahlo uh, were 
looking at themselves in the context, the social scene that they were in at that time. And so I think that, you know, today you would have contemporary artists, you know, wanting to show that there's a kind of continuation of thought, you know, in terms of how artists gauge with what they might consider oppressive, you know, situations. So I think that's why you would see, you know, artists in the past being used within work of the present. Um, I think a piece, uh, another piece that I really like was this video piece by, uh, it was a collaborative team of three people, and it was um, called Citizen Inauguration uh, Performance yes, Number please. Two, and it was what it, they had set up a podium, uh, you know, with a, a U.S. you know seal on it, and you know had everything there, and they were out in public, but. It, in this case, it was the um, inaugurating the first woman president. <laughs> so, right, in Oakland, downtown, and, and uh, it was February they made it. Right, yeah, and so I, I just really love that they, you know, went so far to kind of replicate um, yes. all the um, aesthetic of uh, newscast um, to kind of create that little bit of that blurred line, you know, depending on where you would see it, right. um, of was this real or not real, um, especially like say, if you saw it on YouTube, it could sort of become that sort of subversive fake news, you know, in a kind of way, even though it's an art project. Uh, and uh, so I really, you know, appreciated their kind of guerrilla tactic there. Another piece I... Oh, before you finish that, oh, though, sure. yeah, is okay. that it's an Armenian-American, too. I think that that's yes. exquisite. Mm-hmm. That is the, the first lady uh, inaugurated. Right. No, that's a very good point. And so, you know, it wasn't somebody, you know, dressed up as like Hillary Clinton or anything like that. It was just really simply um, going with the idea of, you know, that this is, you know, past Hillary Clinton and this is the next woman, you know, who ran. And as you say, somebody from a very different background than Hillary Clinton, you know, who um, is this quote unquote next first woman president. Right, right. Past the anointed, and this one sprouted from the the body politic. So you were going to go on to another one. But before you do that, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Tyler Stallings, artistic director at UC Riverside's Arts Block. He's juried a phenomenal array of work exhibited under the title of Art as Protest Now at the Orange County Center for the Contemporary Art in Santa Ana through July 8th. You're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI. 88.9 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web all over the world, KUCI.org. And we've got Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook accounts and platforms. So you were talking, Tyler, about another work you want to unpackage for us. Yeah, there was really another piece that I really like was this series of sculpture called uh, Peaceful Protest Helmet. And the, <laughs> yes. the artist was there wearing it, uh, but what he was interested in was having these um, very kind of colorful helmets that actually had peaceful protest helmet on it. But then what he had done was mounted a camera on top of each one yep. and, and on with, a, uh, with a kind of closed circuit feed. So what he was kind of playing off of was in part the body cam um, that police wear, yet you know the private citizen doesn't have. And so by wearing this helmet with the camera and say if you're encountering, whether it's the police or anybody else, that they are being recorded. And so uh, on one hand, that, you know, it's sort of suggesting that they're through the use of technology, you know, the protesters kind of gaining, you know, more power by kind of archiving um, this event in a very obvious way. And it's also just suggesting that the way that the camera is mounted on the helmet, that it it is in itself a kind of weapon, um, you know, but in this case, it's a a one of witness um, by capturing this information. And also kind of, you know, plays off this era in which there's, 
you could, I guess you could sort of say it's sort of kind of a, you know, a feeling of surveillance, you know, but it's also just more part of that kind of social media atmosphere where, you know, people are giving over their private information. And so I, w I also see it as kind of a sly, somewhat of a commentary, you know, on that also in terms of, you know, blurring the lines between sort of a private life, the public life, and uh, through the ubiquitous, you know, presence, you know, of um, uh, smartphones and cameras and just the, the immediate upload. Uh, so that that was also a favorite piece that I thought was nice too. And another piece um, was um, a woman from the Bay Area, Jenny um, Belial, and it was called America Red, White, and Blue. And it was where she, there were just mon, there were like three monochromatic uh, paper, like red and then blue and then white. But what she'd done is she had taken a, um, a shotgun and um, shot at each color, and then you know depicted it. So, you know, in that case, you know, she's really, I think talking about all the gun violence, you know, in the United States, you know, that it's um, one of those rare first world countries, you know, where everybody can have access, you know, you know, seemingly everybody can sort of have access to a gun. Uh, and there's obviously a lot of debate around that. But I think by shooting at the colors, you could say, on one hand, you could say maybe she's defaming um, the idea of the flag, even though it wasn't an actual flag. But I think she's kind of saying that this flag, which represents the United States, has is embodied, you know, um, and you know, it's through its support of guns, this kind of violence, you know, in its history, uh, and you can't really separate the two uh, at this point. And with some time remaining, there's a couple I wanted you to react to as well. I I got a very huge emotional punch from Sheila Rodriguez's Borderland Endangered Wildlife. It's spelled refuge, but was it meant to be refugee or that that's is the it's refuge meaning it's wildlife refuge, but the refugees implied. Right. Yeah, I would say that. Could, um, could you you know, I can't there were so many words. Oh, I understand. The it's now the, kind of forgetting the, that one. Uh, the female torso stretched out and each hand is grasping an, an end of barbed wire. That's, oh, yes, that's part right. of the fence and her whole body is embroidered. Uh, it's, it's the back that's exposed, the torso, and mm -hmm. it's all embroidered, and it's just—it's got so many conflicting textures in there, and the—and I don't know if the if wildlife refuge is the idea, and refugee is the inference in that rendering of Sheila Rodriguez's. Right. Well, I think it, I think it's combining the two because I think the idea is that as you because that piece um, had you know um, fits the piece I'm recalling had sort of barbed wire. Um, and you know, sort of a fencing um, in front of it. And, you know, part of the idea is that as you try to, you know, create borders that, um, you know, in terms of um, restricting movement, you know, of humans, you know, in this, you know, in this day and age where, of, you know, extreme migration, um, that you're also affecting other animals, you know, um, you're, you're cutting off their access, you know, and to, to, and, you know, their scope of territory that, um, and the, and of course, they're totally ignorant of you know, animals, of what humans see as demarcation points. So, just as you affect humans, you're also basically affecting you know all other animals too. And of course, we're animals also, uh, and so it's kind of ignoring you know how we're all tied together. Um, you know, is how I saw that piece. And there's so much more, as we said. There's 91 pieces, folks. We're not going to get to mention any more because I want to give Tyler a chance to say a little bit about some of this. There will be a special documentary, a play presented, and the Pacific Symphony. I don't know if you want to give the details. 
Um, yeah, I, you know, I think what um, I could say about those other events is that, you know, what's great about this show is that it inspires, you know, all sorts of other uh, events. And that's that's really the best thing is that even though um, I didn't, you know, I mean, I've been in conversation with the people, but even though, um, you know, they weren't formally sort of curated into the, to the show, um, that this idea that the show becomes a platform for dialogue right. um, is, is really, you know, kind of the, is part of the purpose um, of it. And so it's all welcome. And, you know, I, I'm, you know, really happy that OCA, you know, is extending the program and beyond just the exhibition itself. Okay. So it's this, this Saturday, June 17th, that the Play 7 will be presented, documentary play. June 29 will be a performance by the Pacific Symphony, the next opening for maybe there might be a few uh, artists that will be there. I'm not sure. Uh, that that's always sort of the last minute remains to be seen. That's, that's on July 1st from six until ten, folks. You've got to get there before it closes on July 8th. And I know Tyler's got a meeting coming now, so I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for, for joining us. Thank you. It's remarkable. Take a bow, even though you're on radio. <laughs> My guest is Tyler Stallings, Artistic Director at UC Riverside's Arts Block. He's juried a phenomenal array of work exhibited under the title of Art as Protest Now at the Orange County Center for the Contemporary Art in Santa Ana through July 8th. I'm going to close the show now with, with Phil Oaks. Who else? Well, folks, the uh, Santa Ana details, I'll give you those where the Orange County Center for Contemporary Art is. And we can look forward to uh, his installation is going to be in uh, Pacific Standard Time. It's going to be a, a piece in the fall. Well, that was my wrap. Next week, we'll hear from Peggy Maradudin, the great Maradudin, with legit news about Russia and Vladimir Putin. We'll make it as fresh as a Poroshki pulled right out of the oven. A challenge, that is, with so many compelling new developments from over there talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. So there is no one you can blame. Don't be ashamed. Light the flame. One more parade. Listen for the sound and listen for the noise. Listen for the thunder of the marching boys.